0: I'm Michael Counts, and this is Producing Innovation. Uh, I'm thrilled to be sitting here today with uh, Ann Hamburger, who is a producer and actually the very first person who introduced the term creative producer to me, um, which I've sort of co-opted at times to describe what I do um, or a part of what I do. And um, Anne is someone I've known for a long time now, over 20 years, who was a, a huge inspiration to me in my career um, and as someone I've I've worked with and been a fan of and been inspired by and and in some ways tried to emulate Um, and it's just a thrill to me and and in fact I'll I'll say this to anyone who's been following the podcast and listening to everything when I made my list of the people that I knew in my network and people that inspired me that I wanted to have on the podcast in time and was in the top two or three people because of the impact she's had on me and and how much she represents to me, the the very elements of where creativity and business and producing and drive and vision and ambition intersect. So um, with that, I give you Ann Hamburger, and maybe we could start in with um, just some background. Like like uh, your journey has touched many fields and projects and companies that you started. I'd love to just like give you the mic and tell us the story. How do you produce innovation? How do you produce anything? It's always been about reinventing the form.
1: I think we're all in this room together because we believe in lifelong learning.
0: It's all about persistence. If you give up, that's the end of the game. You have no chance. I wanted to go make my own mistakes in pursuit of... I didn't even know one at the time. Show up. Show up when you fail. Show up when you fail miserably. Show up when you don't want to show up. There's an audacity that I think is required to, to be a creator. Just start. Like, don't wait for permission sit down at the table with some of the great creators, some of the people who have cut new ground and found a new path and done things that are like improbable and ludicrous and wonderful and for which we should all be grateful in the worlds of art and theater and music and technology and innovation.
1: This is Producing innovation. Innovation. You're
0: listening to Producing Innovation.
1: I came to the theater um, from performance art, actually, when I was in undergraduate school. I was a sculptor in performance art, and I was very influenced by the public art world. Um, When I was in college, I was fascinated with things like the Spiral Jetty, which is this jetty that Robert Smithson built into the uh, Salt Lake, um, and have always been fascinated about the intersection of art, visual art and theater with the public. And what happens when a public happens upon something? What happens when there's a true interface between Uh, the general public and the work that one creates. Um, When I got out of uh, college, I was uh, doing performance art in New York City and um, fell in love with a Swedish filmmaker, moved to Sweden for two years, and performed in galleries and museums, actually the Museum of Modern Art in um, uh, Malmö, and created these huge fabric sculptures that would take up whole rooms. I, did the, I was there for two years. I came back and was known in New York as the Swedish performance artist, which I thought was rather humorous. But I began to be um, unhappy or frustrated with doing work that I felt was very singular because I am above all else a very collaborative person. And I had the good fortune of meeting Anne Bogart, um, extraordinary director and auteur. Um, I met her actually because she saw my photographs of my performance art in a Tai Chi studio. And so my first entry into the theater was actually as an actress. Uh, and I became a part of her company. She was doing these projects called the Emissions Projects. So this is real theater history. <laughs> and. Anne, uh, as you know, is along with Tina Landau, kind of a, the inventor of the viewpoints. And as someone coming to the theater from a visual arts background, I was fascinated by the way she framed bodies in space um, and the way she used public space and architecture as pieces of the storytelling in her work. So I was acting in her emissions projects for quite some time. And one day I said to her, you know, I found this great detective office on 42nd Street. I think we should do that. And at a certain point, I didn't really want to act anymore. I I just wanted to produce. I feel like in life, we all, despite what the media might say, no one goes in a straight line in terms of what they know and understand about themselves, right? And, you know, now today we expect 16-year-olds to know exactly what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. It's ridiculous. And... I'm no different. I mean, I I have become well-known for the things that I've done, but at first I thought I wanted to be an actor, and then I realized I sucked at that. And I started working with A.M. Bogart and trying to understand where I belonged and what I wanted to be doing. And in that process, I was smart enough to recognize where I felt at home. And I never felt at home as an actor. It wasn't where I belonged. And one of... uh, The great things that I did for Anne is Anne does not have a great sense of what it means to be a producer. She's a great artist, and she wanted to open up a show of hers on Thanksgiving. So this was a show of hers that I was producing, and it was in a cafe on 7th Street and Avenue A. And I said, Anne, you can't open up a show on Thanksgiving. She's like, well, I want to. So I went around to all the stores in the neighborhood, and I said... I am going to bring kids who have no place to go on Thanksgiving into the audience to watch this avant-garde cabaret. So that was an interesting mix, as you can imagine. But I got all those stores in the East Village to sponsor a child on Thanksgiving. So I got them each to give us $15. And so we had the money to go buy big turkeys and mashed potatoes, and there we were in in this Restaurant on 7th Street and Avenue A with all of these kids from the projects on Avenue D who didn't have any place to go for Thanksgiving watching this avant-garde cabaret. That was a long time ago, but that kind of gives you a sense of how I think. I think that's a kind of a, a wonderful example. And so I then was like, well, I really love producing. I love the work Anne's doing. I love the whole notion of using the city as... Our stage, what's next? And I was still doing some performance art work also, but again, I didn't feel home. And so I thought, well, I need to know more about producing. I think I'll apply to grad school. So I applied to the Yale School of Drama. I walked in for my interview and and Ben Mordecai, who was the chairman of the of the management program, said, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I either want to be a Broadway producer or I want to start a site-specific theater company. Well, you couldn't find two things that are further apart. And he admitted me into the management program of the Yale School of Drama, where I created a lot of havoc. I didn't mean to, but I did. Um, and so this doesn't go on too long. I'll skip over those three years, but only to <laughs> say <laughs> that the thing that is funny is that I am a lot of things professionally. You know, I have a lot of different qualities and attributes and things. But the one thing that I am not is a manager. <laughs> but I got a degree from Yale as a ma- in the management program. But while I was at Yale... What they did was the, the management students at Yale would have the students work at the Yale Rep, the traditional conventional Yale Rep. And I went to Ben and I said, here's what I want to do for my thesis project. He said, I, said, I want to start a site-specific theater company. And I don't want to write a paper about it. I want to do it. And he looked at me and he said, you know your MFA is not going to be dependent upon you being successful. He thought it was impossible, and I would never be successful. And I was also actually harassed by some of the teachers at Yale. They were like, oh, yeah, and why don't you go run for president, too? So, um, and I actually had a teacher who, who named Harry, Harry Weintraub, um, who's a lawyer, who did nothing but tease me about what I was saying. And then when En Garde Arts took off and became successful, he, he called me up. He's like, can I get tickets through you or are you going to not let me in? And I was like, no, I forgive you, Harry. I actually did adore him. So I decided I was going to start En Garde Arts. And the very first thing I did was I said, I know, the very first thing I want to do is I want to create a piece for the Pierpont Morgan Library. And um, so I wrote a letter to the woman who ran the Pierpont Morgan Library. And I was imagining, oh, it would be so great. I could have all the performers and all the rooms. And what a fantastic historic landmark to use. And then I get this phone call from her. And she goes, hello. You know the American people who sound like they're from Britain because they want to? That was her. And she was like, hello. Let me tell you. She goes, the Pierpont Morgan Library is not on guard, avant-garde or any other kind of guard. No, we are not doing one of your shows. But I was undaunted, and I continued on, and we did a piece in Central Park, our very first piece, That while I was still in school. And then when I got out of school, the very first show that we did was a piece called Naked Chambers. And it was with a, a playwright and screenwriter named Dick Beebe, who unfortunately passed away. And it was a... 17-floor, empty condominium on the corner of Greenwich and Chambers Streets. And the landlord just said we could use it, right? When you start to think about things like this, like what landlord in 2019 would let you do that anywhere in the country? They wouldn't. So this guy said, yeah, you can use it, it's empty, I don't mind, no problem. And so what we did was we, I took a lot of my classmates from Yale, we made films of fake residents, you know, made, made fantasy families that lived in this skyscraper. And we hired a mountain climber. This is what really blows my mind that this, this real estate This man who owned this building would let us do this and we hired a mountain climber and the mountain climber was an art thief and so the mountain climber would go off the top of the building for the show, climb down the side of the building, go in the windows grab a painting that was really just a prop, come back out, scale down the side of the window, and meanwhile these these, these films were running in the windows, right? And every night we had 30 chairs in the middle of Greenwich Street. <laughs> People come up and sit down. We didn't charge anything and would watch this 15-minute show. So one day, Alan Eisenberg, who was the president of Actors' Equity, who I had met at Yale, comes just by accident, comes walking down the street... And sees all of this, and knows me, and I'm like, "Hi, Alan!" And he looks, and there are all these equity actors who are in these films, and obviously the entire thing is completely illegal. And he just looks at me, and he looks up, and I said, "Have a program!" And he keeps on walking. <laughs> so I never heard at this account. It's not something like today if a senior person for Actors' Equity were to come down the street and see this, you better believe there would be hell to pay. But Alan was like, there's no money here, it's all in good fun, what the hell? That that kind of attitude, unfortunately, sadly, is gone. So we kept putting one foot in front of the other. There were a lot of wonderful empty spaces, we did a, the next big piece we did was in a warehouse on Lafayette and Prince Street called Terminal Bar, with people who are now famous. I've worked with a lot of people now; they're all famous, you know, like Fisher Stevens, you know, was in it. Um, Roxanne Rogers, and it was a piece about AIDS, um, and that got kind of rave reviews in the New York Times. Though, actually, the New York Times almost didn't come because we had to postpone our press opening. And the only reason they ended up coming was because Mel Gussell, who wrote the review, um, when they stopped coming after we postponed, I wrote him a letter about my mission and my vision when I went over to Mel Gussell's apartment, which I looked up in the phone book. Y'all remember what a phone book is? Yeah, yeah. I looked up his address in the phone book and I went over to his house and I snuck into the apartment building and snuck a letter under his door about why I was doing what I was doing. And he called up my press agent later and said, you know, I've changed my mind. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come and review this. And we got a review, and that was kind of the beginning of what put us on the map. And, you know, Ungard Arts was doing the impossible. I mean, for 13 years, we did the impossible. And we I, the shows were magnificent in terms of their spectacle and their beauty and they were extraordinary in terms of what we actually managed to achieve with the artists that we worked with. Um, We closed off four square blocks of the meatpacking district. Reza Abdo, a kind of extraordinary visionary Iranian director uh, who I brought to New York um, who wanted to do the Brothers Karamazov in the meatpacking district because it was empty meat lockers and cobblestone streets and there were no stores there and there was one restaurant and we closed off four square blocks in the meat packing district with sixty performers and a marching band and ran it for four weeks through rain and theft and all kinds of stuff like that and it was a huge hit. That's where I met that's Ken Roth, who mm-hmm. I know you know was, was in that and choreographed that. Um, And we closed off Wall Street for six weeks in the evening. Jonathan Larson, who wrote Rent, I did his first production before Rent, Um, J.P. Morgan Saves the Nation, and wheeled 200 seats into Wall Street every night, and did Another Person is a Foreign Country with Anne Bogart, which was, and Chuck Mee wrote it, uh, in the Empty Towers nursing home, about the way in which people who are different are marginalized by society. Chuck's casting list, I remember, was, uh, I'm reading this casting list that said, a little person, a blind choir, a group of emotionally disturbed rock musicians, a woman who can fit in a box, and we found all these people. We found all these people, and they were in our show, and audiences were lined up around the block because it was so extraordinary. so we always seem to manage to do the impossible. I and mean, we manage to do things so cheaply. My favorite story, which I like to tell when I went to Disney, was Anne is sitting there, and she says, you know, I want to figure out how to make the building cry. So Kyle Tupoulos, the set designer who made a lot of us, things work for you and for me, mm-hmm. says, I know what we can do. He goes and he buys a pipe and he sticks a bunch of holes in the pipe and he takes it up to the roof of the Towers Nursing home. And he attaches the pipe to a fire hose and he attaches the fire hose to the fire hydrant. And every night, at exactly the same moment when the blind choir with their guard dog sitting there starts to sing, our production manager runs to the corner, turns on the fire hydrant, and water starts cascading down the side of the building, lit through the water as people are singing. And it was one of the most beautiful moments of theater I think I've ever seen. Even though it was my show, I still think to this day. So we did all this extraordinary work, and I could talk for three hours about all of it, but I won't. Um, uh, we did Arreste's at the Penn Yards when it was empty. Um, Donald Trump owned that property, and um, Tino, there was a twisted metal pier that jutted out into the Hudson, and Tina was, and we were looking for a place to do Orestes, and Tina looked at the twisted metal pier and said, that is the House of Atreus. So we were like, okay, that's the House of Atreus. And we did Orestes there with, there must have been 30 people in that show. And um it was a huge hit. One of the great things about doing outdoor work when something's a huge hit, you can just add chairs. <laughs> you don't have to worry about being sold out and we were so broke. This this work was of a time and it was incredible. And it in a way you can't you can't do what I did anymore. You can't do it. Why do you think that is? Nine eleven happened. I'd say that well, it's not just nine eleven. I think the whole society has shifted in mm. many ways. I mean so many of the things that we did are impossible for so many reasons. First of all, New York's a different place, right? We, back in the day, I mean, people lived in a six-square-block area, right? You lived in the East Village or Soho or Tribeca or, you know. Brooklyn, like, nobody went to Brooklyn. There was BAM. That was it. Nobody went to Brooklyn. Um, So people were lived in close proximity to one another. It was, here was relatively relatively inexpensive place to live by comparison and people would just have shit jobs and put up a show just because so i remember the first time i met you michael which is so my office was back in the day it was in the back of this 15 car garage i think it formerly must have been like an otb joint or something and uh so I, it's amazing that I'm still alive because the car fumes really, I'm surprised they didn't get me. But at any rate, you came in, you you were still a student, I think, and you came in and you had your your drawing pad. And you were very adamant about what you were going to do. And you had heard about me and you wanted to talk to me and you had a show that you were going to do. And you sat down and showed me all these incredible drawings of stages that you were going to build in the middle of Central Park Lake. <laughs> and I remember I remember going, do I just tell him it's impossible and it's never going to happen. I was like, I really don't want to do that, but it's so cool that he's another nut that thinks like this and is willing to envision stuff that is visionary and impossible and wonderful. He will never do it, but it doesn't matter. I want to know this person, and that's I remember the first time. That's met. All,
0: that 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 day, and yeah, you've told the story since. In fact, I think you told that story at the New York Times. Uh, it's always meant the world to me, and I look back on it and uh, and uh, and you know, it's funny. You said you said something too that like you actually am too. Were like just winded my sails at the right moment uh, and gave me the little bit of encouragement or. You know, I want to say discouragement, but like, but like a little bit of edge, you know. And and it just was just the right thing at the right moment, and it made such a difference to me. I don't know if I've ever told you that, but it, it yeah. sure did. Yeah. It sure did. Katie here. We're taking a quick break from the episode to remind you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Counts Projects, or on our website, CountsProjects dot It's the best way to keep up with our current work and find out more about what we're working on. Okay, back to the episode.
1: I always love meeting people who dare to think out of the box. And, you know, people like you and me, we're so far out of the box, it's like the box doesn't even <laughs> exist, you know? It's like, what box? Where's the box? I don't know where is it is, you know? Um, so En Arts had a great run for 13 years. And there was something that Mac Wellman once said that I remembered for a long, long time. And he said, you know, Founder-driven, and we're in the we're similar in this regard, you know. Founder-driven organizations don't need to last forever. They have a life cycle, and they can come and go, and that's okay. And I had had my twins, so that, and even though I have a very supportive husband, that was exhausting, and I saw New York City changing. Um, because I saw all the spaces going away, all the really cool spaces that I loved and wanted to use. And I didn't see where there was opportunity to take what I was known for and expand it to be more inclusive of other things I wanted to do. So I was restless and need, needed and wanted a change. So when the opportunity to apply for the artistic director of La Jolla Playhouse came along. I applied, got the job, and picked up the family, and we all moved to San Diego. And I thought, oh, okay. So I folded on Guard Arts without a thought, which I've had so many people since then tell me they were so shocked that I did that, and I think if I had to go back and do it all over again, I would not have done that i I would have left because I needed to leave when I left because i didn't I couldn't figure out how to make what I was known for more expansive at the time. Um, but I think I would have tried to pass the baton along rather than just fold it right but hindsight, you know. When I got to La Jolla, I thought my world would grow because I went to run a much larger institution. And I felt like my world shrunk. Um, And I wasn't very happy there. I mean, I don't produce plays, first of all. That's not what I do. And I think in order to run a regional theater, you have to produce plays, you know, so. That's why when people send me their place, I'm like, I don't know why you're sending me your play. That's kind of not what I do, you know? Well, I don't even think I'm good at it, right? I just, like, start projects with ideas that I start developing from the ground up with a team, and we figure out what the core essence of that project is and develop it over a two- to three-year period, and then we come out with something that we hope is magical. That's what I do. So, know, a play. Anyway, so I was there in La Jolla, and I've been there about six months, I think, and I get this weird call out of the blue from a headhunter named Gary Klein who said, Hi, your name has been given to me by Todd Haynes, and Disney is looking for somebody to come in and found and run a global division And I remember I was sitting behind my desk at the La Jolla Playhouse, and I was like, who is this? Um, Thinking somebody was playing a big joke on me. and It wasn't a joke. It was real. And I went in, met with him in New York, and he said, I'm going to send five resumes to California, and yours will be one of them. And I still, it was still, the whole thing was, I couldn't really believe it, because like few had said to me, and sit down and write out 20 jobs you might someday do in your life. Running a theme park division for Disney would not have been one of them. So, so I heard from him. He said he wanted me to meet the chairman of theme parks and resorts, Paul Pressler. So I drove up to LA and went to the Beverly Hills Hotel and had lunch with Paul. And Paul said, after a two hour conversation, you're the one. And, um, and I turned to him and I said, you're kidding. Right? You're kidding. And he said, no, I'm not. So I went to work for Disney and was there for nine years and brought in all kinds of really fascinating, wonderful, incredible artists into the theme park world and started a division called Creative Entertainment and really fundamentally changed the way theme park entertainment was developed and produced uh, for the parks around the world. And... I did that for nine years.
0: I have to tell you, when I was in Hong Kong, I took Wilder to Hong Kong Disney, and we went and saw a couple of the shows, and I just thought, like, these things would not be here if it wasn't for Ann Hamburger.
1: I kind of got bored at Disney because I managed to do all these amazing things and start a new division and put all these incredible shows up. And then once I had done all that, and I had all these shows running in parks all around the world, I didn't have anything to look forward to. And I've never been somebody who's been motivated by money for myself, you know, though I could use a lot more for on-guard arts these days, but <laughs> um, and I just started making money by accident, kind of, you know, which is, and I missed the theater. I missed New York. I missed being able to create things that weren't bringing a movie to life, which was really you know I mean all I did, right um which is a lot, but still, I missed it. so when I left Disney, we came back to New York, and I spent like three years in utter confusion, of which you were a part of that also <laughs> and um and then I finally realized like, oh. I belong in the not-for-profit world, developing work. That's what I should be doing. And so I was like, well, it's insane to start on guard arts again. Like it's it's crazy enough to start a not-for-profit theater once, much less to start it twice. But you know, I really think um, I think a lot about well, life, transitions in life. I think. I think, in a way, like how we deal with transitions is almost more important than anything else we do, on some fundamental level, because there's so many people who are frightened of the new, and are frightened of transitions, because you could fail, right? Inherent, and, and that is failure. But so then they don't. So then they stay stuck. Majority of people in the world, that's what they do. They're like in one job. They're not really happy. They're not going to move on. They kind of stay stuck. And I'm just always been somebody, I think I have a great deal of capacity for change and resilience, more than the average person. So um, when I came back to New York, I I was steeped in one failure after another for about three years and very, very, very depressed. And then I was just like, that's because... I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And there's a saying that I've come up with that's a very strong visual image, which is, if you're banging your head against the wall, you need to turn around. (laughs) And it's this, you know, so I did. And I relaunched on guard Arts, and I am really so happy doing the work that I'm doing now. It's a struggle financially, but I just... Kind of said, okay, here I am. Who am I? What's needed, and how can I make a difference? And I think I have asked myself those questions all my life. And so asking myself that, I said, I'm an I'm an artist, and what's needed, I think, is art that can be Uh, that has social change at its core that can truly be a bridge between the kind of larger society and the problems we face and change, Um, that's what's needed. And I can make a difference because I know how to produce good work and deal with artists. So I answered those three questions and then the logical conclusion of that was, well, then I need to relaunch Younger Arts. And so the first... Thing I did was Bass Live, which, I don't know if you saw that, it was about the impact of war on veterans and their families. And it had a photographer who was an Im- embedded in Afghanistan who took these amazing photographs and videos of um, Marines in a particular Unit 18, um, and started the first Facebook page and website in the war, in the Afghanistan war. Knight, award-winning photographer. And there was a four-piece electroacoustic score by two Juilliard composers, Ed Billis and Michelle Debucci, who had done a workshop at Juilliard, the first incarnation of that. And then a wonderful man named Seth Boakley, who came on to direct. And then we literally also went and filmed vets around the country who had been in Afghanistan. We found them through Facebook. We put the show together. It was on the Harvey stage at BAM. It went to 40 cities. The thing I'm probably most proud of, of all of it, is we went to Fort Hood in Colleen, Texas. We were invited to Fort Hood. And we performed the show for 2,500 soldiers over the course of six days. And it's soldiers who were between the ages of like 18 and 25. These are not dudes who go to the theater, you know? And one guy walked in, I ever heard him saying, oh my God, I can't believe we have to go to another one of these PowerPoint demonstrations about how we shouldn't kill ourselves. He had no idea what he was coming in to see. And he sat down and they watched the show and we worked with the Intrepid Behavioral Health Center. And after the show, I went up to him and I was like, well, so it wasn't a boring PowerPoint demonstration. He goes, dude, this is boy, this is something maybe I will go see a shrink. And it was like profound. Wow. Um, and the army did a study after we left, it found that there was a 36% decrease in stigma towards um, therapy by the people that saw our show, which was so funny. So for me, it's like, OK, keep going. <laughs> Apply for another $5,000 grant. Go off salary for a few months. What the hell? Let's go. So um, this is the kind of work I'm doing now. We're working on a five borough tour with a Latinx team. Um, that's in the form of a Fandango. And a Fandango is a community celebration of music and dance that hails from Veracruz. And it's derived from the stories of undocumented immigrants. And we want to take it to all five boroughs. And then we're working on another piece uh, with a Lebanese-American writer and uh, African-American director, Leila Buck and Tamala Woodard, about a Muslim family and a Christian family that come together to plan a wedding that's gonna be an immersive dinner party. That's 2021. And then because I've been phenomenally frustrated by the fact that I went from running a global division to the fact that I could only do one thing at a time, however complex they are, which they are, um, I've just started a new series called Uncommon Voices, which I love and I'm having so much fun with because but it's e- comparison it's easy. So there's this wonderful cafe in Brooklyn called the Commons Cafe. It's an eighty seat cafe. And the first Monday of every month we present artists developing new work around social change. And so on April first we have this artist Tanya Kalmanovich who comes from a boom oil town, Fort McMurray in Canada. And she went back and she interviewed the people she grew up with, and she has voice recordings and video and film, and she is a fiddle player, and she does this one-person show, and she plans to go back to Fort McMurray and travel the oil pipeline down back to New York. Um, And we had Lisa Jesse Peterson, who has been working with teens at Rikers Island, and we're literally booked through the end of December, and I want to keep going. I want to expand it because it's so... Fun and it's like I say, to the artists come in. There's a little stage. There's lights. There's sound. You get a little bit of money. The cafe gives us the space for free. She takes the food and the booze and the wine cost. We take the box office support to twelve more artists in a year. And by by any hamburger standards. It's easy, and it's also fun because we've sold out everyone and people come they see the show, and then we have these wonderful conversations, and they go and get a, get up and get another glass of wine, have a salad. It's really wonderful and a wonderful sense of community, and my dream is to have it as a wandering cafe where we can go to other places so so you know that's what I'm doing now
0: that's awesome, so. Uh, there's a question that that i, I mean in a, it's funny in a way you've you've already answered the question, but I'm just gonna pose it anyway, which is um, yeah you know, I, I often think that this podcast is for uh, and I, I think of it as some you know young person or some person who's stuck, you know, like you were talking about somewhere in the country somewhere in the world who has these dreams of realizing some vision or project or idea but just doesn't know how to do it and doesn't know that they just have to start. <clears throat> and and I feel like in a way we're making this for them to give them as pioneers and as people who have like just started and just done crazy shit and who have disregarded the box a long time ago and maybe if they're still stuck in the box to give them some thoughts or inspiration the way you did me and I'm sure the way I have and with others in my career is what... What would you say to that person? What what advice would you give them? Um, you know, the, you, you, I love and I think I'm going to refer to it like the what you were saying about someone who's just stuck. How do you get? How do you how do you get help them get unstuck?
1: Well, I think if in the, the, the theater is one of the most collaborative mediums, right, of anything we could do, and I think that um, you you mentioned it earlier. It's really important to have a mentor. And people are like, well, how do I find a mentor? It's like, go volunteer. Go look at what's that organization whose work you love the most and go plant yourself there and get coffee or, you know, Xerox. I don't I guess that term doesn't exist anymore. You know, take pictures with your cell phone of scan scan bills. (laughs) I was just, I'm writing a book about my life and I just literally was writing something today, and what I wrote was America loves heroes. We love heroes. We love to point our finger at the people who we feel are visionaries, right? But the truth is, for every visionary, there's all those people who helped the visionary. The visionaries are maybe the catalysts, but there's Karen Dalzell, who's been in both of our lives, and there's Portia Kamins, who is my right-hand producer, and there's Joe Melillo, I was his intern in 1985. I don't know if I would have kept going without the support and advice and encouragement of Joe Melillo, who's just left the BAM, the president of BAM. You know, I think to find people who are people who you respect and admire and to befriend them is a very, very important thing to do. And then I'd say the second thing is Don't wait for somebody to hand you something, and it'll never happen. It's important to have have and find a support network. Everybody needs a mentor. It's important to have peers. Water seeks its own level. Like, I had somebody, a colleague, say to me, I'm going to go ask, and he mentioned a very famous director, to direct my play, and I'm like, you are wasting your time. You know, water seeks its own level. Like, people who are famous, whatever that means, are not gonna direct your play if you're unknown. So it's a matter of dreaming, yes, but dreaming in such a way that you can take realistic steps towards whatever goal you might have. And also understanding that it's incremental. Like, all the things that I've accomplished are over 35 years, right? And and then, you know, it's okay if people wanna quit because this isn't for everybody. I mean, this is, I think the only reason people keep creating is because really they don't, they can't do anything else, right? Like I just, there's nothing else I wanna do. I love what I do. It's hard. You know, there are times when I go, I just can't stand, I'm gonna quit, but I'm not. Um, I mean, the only thing that would make me quit is if there was absolutely no way for me to get money. Because I have so many ideas and things I want to do and people I want to support. And and it's part of why I get up in the morning. I love doing what I do so much. But it's been, it's hard. And you have to be able to weather failure. Somebody once said to me, I was like, I just don't know if I should keep doing this. And this person said to me something that was very wise, I thought. And she said, you know, it's all about what you can tolerate. (laughs) I think that's true, you know? Like if you love it and you can tolerate it and you can manage how to make a living at the same time and survive and pay your rent, that's good too. The only other thing I would say is another mistake I see people make is they get out of school and they want to be a director or a playwright or have their own theater company. And then they go and they take a full-time job. That is the wrong thing to do, for for the most part, I think. Because when you have a full-time job, you have no time. And time is of the essence. So if you really want to become a playwright or director or have your own theater company, then I think it's like, OK, well, then maybe I need to just go be a bartender or a waitress or teach SATs, which I think is one of the smartest things people are doing today, right? Be an SAT tutor. You have to take little baby steps to get to where you have a career. And and even then, (laughs) you don't stop taking those baby steps. I think the other important thing that people need to ask themselves when moving forward with this stuff is, what are you doing that's unique from what everybody else is doing, right? Like, how are you fulfilling a need that doesn't exist? Because it doesn't always make sense to go start your own theater company for instance um because if there's another theater company that's already doing what you want to be doing maybe you should just go be with them right so um in no apparent order that is some advice that i have
0: that is great advice you were a pioneer then you're a pioneer now oh, it's um it's uh it's just it was so interesting too to hear some of the, the some of the gaps, some of the details that I didn't know about the story of Manhamburger. So that was great, and I think anyone listening is gonna if, if they if they really pay attention, there's a there's a great roadmap here and a lot of great tools um, for people to pursue what they want and achieve what they want. And
1: I have one final thing to please. say, which is my motto: learn all the right ways to do things, and then when that doesn't work, do whatever it takes, short of breaking the law.
0: That is a great motto. Awesome. And Hamburger, thank you so much <laughs> You're for being welcome. here today. It's such a pleasure to see you. Same here. Follow Accounts Projects on Facebook and Instagram, or check out Producing Innovation on Patreon, where you can subscribe to join our community for production updates, behind the scenes access, creative meeting highlights, regular posts from me and the team, special offers, meetups, and more. Please remember to rate, share, comment, and subscribe to Producing Innovation wherever you listen to your podcasts.